Chapter 19 of John Dean of Toronto. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. John Dean of Toronto. A Comedy of Whitehall by Herbert George Jenkins. Chapter 19. Commander John Dean goes to Bournemouth. 1. Late one afternoon, when Dorothy and Mrs. West were walking along the Christchurch Road, on their way back to the boarding-house for dinner, Dorothy suddenly gave vent to an exclamation, and with both hands clutched her mother's arm so fiercely that she winced with the pain. "'Look, mother!' she cried. "'It's—' Following the direction of her daughter's eyes, Mrs. West saw, walking sturdily towards them on the other side of the road, a man in the uniform of a naval commander. In his mouth was a cigar, from which he was puffing volumes of smoke. With a little cry, Mrs. West recognized him. It was John Dean of Toronto. There was no mistaking the truculent, aggressive air of a man who knows his own mind, and is determined that everyone else shall know it too. Suddenly, Dorothy released her mother's arm and, running across the road, planted herself directly in John Dean's path. "'Mr. Dean!' she cried, when he was within a yard or two of her. Several passers-by turned their heads. For a fraction of a moment, John Dean gazed at the apparition in front of him, not recognizing Dorothy in the white frock and large hat that shaded her eyes. Then, with what was to him a super smile, he held out his hand. "'Say, this is bully!' he cried, giving Dorothy a grip that caused her to wince. "'I've just been to your apartment house and found you out.' Then, catching sight of Mrs. West, "'Why, there's your mother!' he cried, and, gripping Dorothy's arm with an enthusiasm that she was convinced would leave bruises, he guided her across the road." A moment later, Mrs. West was having the greatest difficulty in preserving a straight face under John Dean's vigorous greeting. "'I've been chasing all over Robin Hood's barn to find you,' he cried, still clasping Mrs. West's hand. "'And, according to the papers, other people have been doing the same with you,' said Dorothy, deciding in her own mind that John Dean ought to spend the rest of his life in uniform." it gave him a distinction that hitherto he had lacked in the ill-cut and ill-made clothes he habitually wore i found these waiting for me at my hotel he said looking down at himself as if divining her thoughts i ordered them way back he added you look very nice mr dean said mrs west smiling happily she had not yet recovered from her surprise all the girls are turning and envying mother and me said Dorothy mischievously. Envying you? John Dean turned upon her a look of interrogation. For being with you, she explained. For some reason, John Dean's face fell. Mrs. West hastened to the rescue. We've all been so anxious about you, she smiled. We, we thought. And shall I get twenty thousand pounds if I give you up to a policeman? asked Dorothy. She felt she wanted to cry from sheer happiness. "'Rewards withdrawn. Haven't you seen the papers?' he said practically. "'But they nearly did for Jim,' he added inconsequently. "'Jim,' repeated Dorothy. "'Who is Jim?' "'My brother,' was the reply. "'He took my place, and I went north.' "'Ooh!' 
Gradually, light was dawning upon Dorothy. Then it wasn't you who forgot where the stamps were kept, and, she added wickedly, seemed to disapprove of me so. Disapprove of you, John Dean managed to precipitate such a wealth of meaning into the words that Dorothy felt herself blushing furiously. Even Mrs. West appeared a little embarrassed at his directness. Here, it's about time we had some food, he said, turning his wrist to see the time. We were just going home to dinner, said Mrs. West. Won't you come with us? I want you to come right along to my hotel. I booked a table for you. That's not very complimentary to our attractiveness, Mr. Dean, said Dorothy. Again, John Dean turned to her with a puzzled look in his eyes. You should have assumed that two such desirable people as Mother and me were dining out every night, shouldn't he, Mother? John Dean turned to Mrs. West, his brows meeting in a frown of uncertainty. Dorothy will never be serious, she explained with a little sigh. She's only joking. Whereat John Dean's face cleared, and without further ado he hailed a taxi. As Sir Bridgman North had said, John Dean never waited to be contradicted. That evening, many of the diners at the Imperial turned their heads in the direction of a table at which sat a man in the uniform of a naval commander, a fair-haired girl, and a little white-haired lady, the happiness of whose face seemed to arouse responsive smiles in those who gazed at her. Slowly and haltingly, John Dean told of what had happened since that Wednesday night, some three months before, when his brother had taken his place. Although John Dean never hesitated when telling of what he was going to do, he seemed to experience considerable difficulty in narrating what he had actually done. "'And aren't you happy?' inquired Dorothy, her eyes sparkling with excitement at the story of what the destroyer, her destroyer, had done. "'Sure,' he replied, looking straight into her eyes, whereat she dropped her gaze to the peach upon her plate." "'I feel very proud that I know you, Mr. Dean,' said Mrs. West, her eyes moist with happiness. "'Proud to know me,' he repeated, and then, as if Mrs. West's statement held some subtle humor that he alone had seen, he smiled. "'Why do you smile?' asked Dorothy, looking up at him from beneath her lashes. "'Well, it tickled me some.' "'What did?' she demanded. "'That anyone should be proud to know me.' he said simply. "'Perhaps it's because you've never gingered mother up,' said Dorothy, pertly. "'Dorothy!' Mrs. West looked anxiously at John Dean, but his eyes were on Dorothy. "'And are you glad to know me?' he demanded. "'Proud was the word,' corrected Dorothy, playing with her fruit knife. "'Glad will do,' he said, watching her keenly. "'Are you glad I'm back?' "'You see, I'm your secretary,' she said demurely, "'and I'm, I'm paid to be glad, aren't I?' John Dean's face fell. "'When you get to know her better,' said Mrs. West, "'you will see that she only teases her friends.' "'And her poor mother,' put in Dorothy. "'When do we resume work, Mr. Dean?' she asked, turning to him. "'We'll go back tomorrow a.m.' he said, "'obviously relieved at the suggestion. "'But our holidays!' cried Dorothy in mock consternation. "'You can have as long a vacation as you like when I'm through,' was the answer. And Dorothy drew a sigh of relief. She was longing to get back to work. 
That night she and Mrs. West sat up until dawn was fingering the east, talking of the miraculous reappearance of John Dean of Toronto, as they leisurely packed ready for the morrow. 2. For nearly an hour John Dean had sat in his chair listening. From time to time he gave to the unlit half-cigar in his mouth a rapid twirl with his tongue, but beyond that he had manifested no sign of emotion. Quietly and as succinctly as possible, Malcolm Sage had gone over the happenings of the last few months, telling of the discovery of Mr. Montague Naylor's secret code, how it had enabled Department Z to enlarge the scope of its operations, how Finley had hampered Mr. Naylor in his murderous intentions with regard to his prisoner by suggesting the displeasure that would be created in high quarters if anything happened to John Dean before the plans of the destroyer had been secured. I didn't figure on Jim getting corralled, said John Dean at length. That was where your reasoning was at fault, was Malcolm Sage's quiet retort. I warned him, began John Dean. Then, a moment later, he added, I'd hate to have anything happen to Jim. He seems all used up. He'll be all right in a month or so, said Colonel Walton reassuringly. He's always sort of been around when I've wanted things done, has Jim continued John Dean, with a note of real feeling in his voice. He's a white man, clean to the bone. Malcolm Sage had already learned all he wanted to know with regard to James Dean. Quiet, taciturn, seldom uttering more than a word or two at a time, and then, only when absolutely necessary, he was entirely devoid of the brilliant qualities of his brother, for whom, however, he possessed an almost dog-like affection. All their lives it had been John who had planned things, and James who had stood admiringly by. "'I was tickled to death about those advertisements,' said John Dean presently. "'You probably thought we were barking up the wrong tree,' suggested Colonel Walton. "'Sure, until you put me wise.' "'We were trying to play into your hands and save your brother.' said Malcolm Sage, as he knocked the ashes from his pipe against the heel of his boot, and proceeded to stuff tobacco into the bowl. "'If it hadn't been for those advertisements,' began John Dean, then he paused. "'The first hole dug in Mr. Naylor's back garden would have been filled in again,' said Sage quietly. "'But how did they manage Jim after he'd got into that taxi?' The driver released a multiple curtain that fell over his head, as a dropped chloroform was sprayed over it. Quite a simple automatic contrivance. There was a look in John Dean's eyes that would have been instructive to Mr. Naylor, could he have seen it. They took him right out into the country, continued Sage, then brought him to and doped him. He was taken to the Cedars between one and two the next morning. That was where we picked up the scent again, he added. As Sage ceased speaking, Colonel Walton offered his cigar case to John Dean, who, taking a cigar, proceeded to light it. "'By the way, Mr. Dean,' said Sage casually, "'do you remember someone treading on your toe at King's Cross the night you were going north? You were quite annoyed about it.' John Dean nodded and looked across at Sage, as if expecting something further. "'That was one of our men.' But I told him to tread on your toe, proceeded Malcolm Sage, so that you might remember that Department Z was not quite so... Now it gets me, cried John Dean. It was you who trod on my foot at the theater. At Chu Chin Chow, said Malcolm Sage, smiling. 
"'Seems to be a sort of stunt of yours,' said John Dean as he rose. "'Going, Mr. Dean?' inquired Colonel Walton. "'Yup,' he said, as he shook his hands with each in turn, then, with an air of conviction, added, "'I take it all back. You'd do well in Toronto.' And with a nod, he went out. "'I wonder if that's a testimonial to us, or a reflection upon Toronto?' murmured Malcolm Sage, as he polished his nails with a silk handkerchief. "'What I like about colonials,' remarked Colonel Walton dryly, "'is their uncompromising directness.' Whilst John Dean was removing from the list of things that required gingering up, Department Z and its two chiefs, Mr. Llewellyn John, was engaged in reading Commander Ryle's report upon the operations of the destroyer. It proved to be one of the most remarkable documents of the war." first it described how the destroyer had hung about the danish coast but had been greatly embarrassed by the density of the water owing to the shallowness of the north sea she had carefully to seek out the clear passages where the depth was sufficiently great to prevent the discoloration of water by sand after the first few weeks the destroyer had been brought south there to catch u-boats soon after they submerged that was where the germans suffered their greatest losses once the destroyer had penetrated right into the Heligoland Bight, her eyes enabling her to avoid submerged mines and entanglements. Commander Riles had himself witnessed the destruction of thirty-four U-boats. Three times the destroyer had returned to her base to revittle and recharge her batteries, also to rest her crew. At the termination of the third trip, it had been decided that the boat was badly in need of a thorough overhaul and in accordance with the instructions received he had prepared his report and brought it south in order that he might deliver it in person to the first lord when he had finished the lengthy document mr llewellyn john laid it on the table beside him for some minutes he sat thinking presently he pressed the knob of the bell as the secretary appeared he said ring through to sir roger flynn and tell him i shall be delighted if he can breakfast with me to-morrow and Mr. Llewellyn John smiled. End of chapter 19 Recording by William Tomko